honestly been quite struck by the lack of engagement with social scientists and food studies scholars like myself. It's a different kind of set of insights that we bring. We are the Department of Unintended Consequences because we understand the history of the food system and of technology. And we see this in the history of GMOs, that people were very much concerned with the broader sociopolitical questions about consolidation in the agricultural sector, about intellectual property rights, about the patenting of seeds, about the impacts on farmers around the world. There's this ongoing conversation about how does the public understand science? But I like to flip that question around. Like, how do scientists understand the public? Hey peeps, this episode will make you reflect on some bigger topics and ask some bigger questions. It's a very valuable and contrarian perspective that we haven't had during this season on promoting alternative proteins. Charlotte Biltikoff is an associate professor at UC Davis in American Studies and in Food Science and Technology. She has been studying the relationship between food and culture, how values and beliefs shape people's eating habits, but also the connection between food and social order. Definitely highly, highly interesting topics. She investigates how food becomes good or bad. This has definitely been an inspiring and valuable contribution to the season. And this is one of the last episodes. We already started working on the next season on food waste a while ago. If you're interested to get involved with Red to Green, we're looking for advisors and volunteers regarding design, social media, PR, and many other fields. Check out redtogreen.solutions and click on Get Involved to find out more. Let's jump right in. This is Red to Green. You're listening to season three on promoting alternative proteins. 12 episodes covering consumer acceptance and food psychology of novel foods, like cell-cultured meat and alternative dairy. To receive the best takeaways on food tech and sustainability, subscribe now. And sign up to our newsletter at redtogreen.solutions. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Charlotte, it's really fantastic to have you on Red to Green. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we already had a very interesting pre-conversation and you actually talked to me about the need to reframe the whole question of consumer acceptance. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, I, I'll be honest, I was really struck by the way that the season is being framed. I think the way I read it on the website was, how can we make consumers shift from conventional to alternative proteins? And this question of how do we make consumers change their habits is a very um, specific way of framing the question of consumer acceptance or of what the relationship between innovators and entrepreneurs in the sector and the public should be. The assumption is we have a great solution and we just need to get people to accept it. And so in this way of approaching the relationship with the public, it's kind of a narrowed down version of what that relationship could be. It really sees the public solely as consumers that might sort of give a thumbs up or the thumbs down to the particular innovation or technology. And so the focus becomes on a kind of communication with the public that's really just about ensuring their acceptance. It's like just marketing to them to try to get them to 
thumbs up on the product or thumbs up on the technology. And there's so much more that the interaction between innovators and entrepreneurs and others in the sector and the public could be. So yeah, I think that the question could be more broadly conceived as like, what should the relationship between the alternative protein sector and the public be? What could it be? If we're going to be super disruptive, right, if we're going to promise a major transformation in the the way food is produced, even in the food system, then couldn't we also really imagine something super disruptive, something really transformative and different in terms of how we imagine the relationship between innovators and entrepreneurs and the public that goes beyond just this question of acceptance, like do they like it or not? Can we get them to like it? Interesting. That reminds me of pretty much the beginning of Red to Green. I think in episode one, I talked to Paul Shapiro, who wrote the first book on clean meat. And in the book, he's describing this science fiction-like future in which we have a meat maker in our kitchens and we can just pop in some salines and just make our own meat right here and there. And in the second episode of the podcast, I talked to Yuki Hanyu, who was enabling people to grow their own meat in little kits. It was already possible a few years ago on a very small scale. When you were talking about this right now, it sparked an idea in me that, well, it could be more collaborative with the public at some point or engaging people in grow your own meat as a way to not just create consumer acceptance, but consumer engagement or public engagement rather. Yeah, I, I think those are such interesting examples. And I've enjoyed thinking about those examples as well. I do think, though, that when we consider the question of engagement instead of acceptance, which is an evolution, and I think it's a really important one, we also have to think about the timeline. So where in the process does the question of engaging with the public emerge? So in that scenario, the technology has been developed It's been determined to be the solution to the problems facing us in the food system, particularly around protein. And it's being delivered to consumers fully formed to engage with. And it is different from purely as a consumer, like here it's, it's a completely finished product because they're making it at home and they can understand in a very different and tactile sense how the technology works. And that is different. But a bigger difference is where earlier in the timeline of framing research questions, of establishing assumptions about what's important, of defining research directions and who's involved, where all of that's already settled along the way. Are there opportunities for even earlier in the process forms of engagement with publics, with engaged or interested publics or any publics at all? So it is interesting to think about that in, a, in sort of a chronological sense of where there's like a sedimentation that happens along that process of assumptions and of power dynamics and such. And so what are the mechanisms for pushing engagement even earlier? Would you say the following example fits that? So Alla Farms has a Gen Z board. They choose some very engaged Gen Zs to be involved in thinking about the future of the cultured meat industry and questioning and sharing their opinions and that. So they are involving them in the creation of 
the future vision of other farms. Is that going in the direction that you're pointing towards? That's really interesting. I, I didn't know about that. And it's something I'd really love to learn more about and sort of be a fly on the wall to see how that's taking place. But yeah, certainly opening up the process of envisioning the future of food, which includes framing the problems, deciding which problems matter, where the investment of time and energy and money goes in terms of research questions. Like I'm really interested in this question of who gets to participate in envisioning the future of food and of the food system and how, how do those doors open and close and what are the formats? What are the venues? What are the styles of thinking and engaging and um, imagining that are enabled. So yeah, that sounds really interesting. I wonder how they select who gets to be in the room and how they structure those settings and then what they do with the findings. Like, do you know anything about what they're finding out from these participants? Well, I can research on that, <laughs> but I, I'm not that in-depth in it. I, I'm actually curious. So the thing is that a lot of these startups have very limited budgets. The investment in the field is increasing, but still most of the budget is going towards R&D. So working on something that addresses public engagement seems like a secondary investment of money, maybe not even secondary, maybe more down the line. So why would startups care about doing that? Yeah, I think that's exactly the question. I mean, startups care about acceptance, right? Like, is somebody at the end of the line going to purchase my product? Or is somebody at the end of the line going to start protesting about my product? <laughs> you know, those are those are top level concerns. And so that's why the question gets framed as one of acceptance. And that's where marketing departments get involved, right, at some point in the process. But we're talking about something really different here. And you're asking a good question, which is like, whose responsibility is it to think in a more in a broader and more systemic way about how these technologies fit into the food system? And as part of that, but usually not included in how we think about the food system, how they participate in social dynamics and democratic processes about the assessment of the direction of technological innovation for the future of food. So I have often wondered, because I've spent a lot of time at conferences in the last few years, and I have honestly been quite struck by the lack of engagement with social scientists and food studies scholars like myself, who do bring a different perspective on the public. So we're not market researchers who've gone out and done a survey and said, well, you need to dial up the texture and down the sodium and call it this. You know, it's a different kind of set of insights that we bring. We are the department of unintended consequences in a sense, because we understand the history of the food system and of technology. And we have a broad sense of the social and cultural landscape, not any one of us, but in the aggregate, that's our expertise. So I've been really struck by the, the lack of presence of food studies scholars and social scientists in those contexts. There's like a defensive, like how do we prevent NGOs from coming after us in the shadow of what happened with GMOs? There's this concern, like we need to get ahead of this. But I haven't heard any kind of interest in those contexts, in those bigger conversations, in bringing those perspectives in and hearing and listening. There's this ongoing conversation about how does the public understand science and how does the public respond to these technologies and what could happen and what could go wrong? And a lot of concern about that, which is valid. But I like to flip that question around. Like, how do scientists understand the public? How can we make that better, more nuanced, more informed understanding among 
scientists and innovators of the public, of their publics. That doesn't just come from market researchers. I heard in one of your recent interviews in this series, um, the woman from New Harvest. Isha Dattar, yes. Isha Dattar, thank you, yeah. And she was saying, I just don't think that consumer research is our friend right now. Like this is a tool that might not be up to the task of something as different as what we're proposing. And for different reasons, but related, I, I'm with her on that. Like this is a time for a different kind of, a different set of tools for thinking about publics and consumers um, as part of that. I love your framing of the Department of Unintended Consequences. <laughs> <laughs> so I would love to hear from you. What do you think if we as the alternative protein industry would reach out to the Department of Unintended Consequences? Let's call it the DUC. <laughs> what, what would the DUC advise us? Okay, well, I think it would be great to talk about some of the assumptions that are currently operating in terms of how the sector is approaching public acceptance. And I think I want to start broad and then get a little bit more specific about this. But broadly, I think there, there's an assumption that is generally operating around this question of consumer acceptance about the problem of consumers not understanding the technology. And there's this baseline assumption that consumers are irrationally fearful, uninformed, that they're going to react out of not understanding how the technology works. And so there's a need for communication that informs them and that educates and informs them. And that's how we achieve acceptance, right? Or that's how the sector achieves acceptance. And so... As the Department of Unintended Consequences, I would advise rethinking the assumption that skepticism about these technologies or hesitancy to pick them up is necessarily the result of fear or lack of information. That falsely narrows the terrain in a way that if you assume that the problem is fear, then there's all these ways of communicating with the public that come out of that the approach to transparency that we see now, for example. But there are a lot of things that possibly inform skepticism or hesitancy that aren't about lack of information. There's plenty of social science research that shows that sometimes if you inform people more about a technology, help them to know more about how it works, they become more concerned about it, not less. And I also don't mean to say that, that there is no lack of understanding and that there are no public knowledge deficits when it comes to these technologies. You know, we all have knowledge deficits. We all don't understand things about how technologies work or different parts of the science work. But what I am challenging is the assumption that consumer concerns or skepticism or resistance about these technologies is caused by a lack of knowledge or understanding. Because there are a lot of legitimate concerns that the public might have about these technologies that don't stem from not understanding how the technology works but might stem, for example, from concerns about how they fit into the broader socio-political landscape. What are the power dynamics? Like who's included, who's excluded from 
the process? What kinds of potential impacts are there, you know, of course, on the environment and on animals and on humans in the food system, but also more broadly on social relations and social justice, for example, there's like a whole range of concerns that aren't about whether or not you understand the technology. I I would anticipate that continuing to frame the problem as education and putting out, for example, these like forms of communication that are about like really simplifying the technology because people don't really understand it. And if you just give them this simple diagram, one, two, three, this is how it works, then they'll come around. But I I really think that 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 risks unintended consequences because it can further alienate people to treat them as ignorant when they have legitimate concerns. That's my central concern about that. Hmm, Okay. At the same time, we also need to have a way of explaining it that is super easy for the people who do not want to sit down and now really understand what are the different types of cell lines and what really goes on in a bioreactor. So how do you balance these two? That is a very good question. Well, I think when it comes to the question of like, how does this technology work? If I were going to redo the process diagrams that I see on everybody's websites, step one, we find our ingredients too. We put them in a bioreactor three, the magic has been done. And now we have this great thing, you know, one thing that really strikes me about these cartoons basically of the process is that they're totally in a vacuum. They're, they're completely decontextualized from, for example, where did the raw materials come from and what are the impacts? Where's, what are the energy sources and how does that play into what the end result is in terms of a benefit? from conventional production methods and all the other things that necessarily surround this technological process. What happens? Where's the waste stream? Where are the humans involved? How does it link up to existing parts of the food system? I mean, certainly this complicates things, right? But there's one thing to answer the question of how the technology works. And there's another thing, which is to say, if our goal is to have a good relationship with the public, That's not the only question that matters. It's not just about explaining what goes on before and after and inside of a bioreactor. I think the point I'm trying to make is that legitimate concerns about these technologies aren't necessarily about how the technologies function, but rather what broader systems and structures they're part of. What are they disrupting and what are they failing to disrupt? in terms of the problems in the food system, which are not purely technological. They are social and they are political. And with the way that the public interacts with the novel technology is informed by all of that. It's not as narrow as the process diagram might imply. Interesting. Maybe the macro story of a bit David against Goliath could be quite helpful. So in the case of cellular agriculture, we do have the startups with the entrepreneurs, the ones that are believing in the mission and want to change the world. There is much more of a storyline that is more accessible to people compared to if these technologies would be driven by corporations. And so startup storytelling could actually be better in terms of making people just trust the people behind this, not just the technology itself. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're pointing to a potential that exists in the scenario of of what this sector is doing and how it's doing it that that is unique. And um, speaking again from the Department of Unintended Consequences, this happens among incumbents in the sectors as well as among startups. 
but the innovation around alternative protein has and the companies that are operating in that area is really been like oriented around this idea of impact of mission addressing grand challenges and i think that's been a strategy it's it, it's also true that people are very mission driven but it's also been a strategy that's been used in, in a public facing way right that this is about saving the world this is about feeding the 9 billion or more it, it's in the service of the sustainability challenges and meeting these grand challenges in food and agriculture and i think that this is another area where the sector risks actually further alienating the public because Oftentimes, this sort of rhetoric of impact and grand challenges, it's taken up on the assumption that people, consumers will be skeptical if they think that the innovators are profit driven. So it's a way of saying we're not in this for us. We're not just in this for capitalism for cash. We're in this for a greater good. And then the conversation becomes we're just in this for the greater good. And the whole question of who profits and how profit functions in this world, in this sector, it is completely unacknowledged and ignored. There's a wonderful um, scholar of science and society named Claire Maris, who's done some really interesting research around this. And she talks about it as like a vicious cycle or a spiral where the assumption is that consumers are going to be sort of turned off by profit seeking. And so when transparency is practiced, when communication is practiced, it doesn't include profit at all. As if it doesn't play a part, as if it's not a factor, then the emphasis becomes purely on the ground challenges or on the impact and doing good. And that risks further alienation because it doesn't, it doesn't address the question the legitimate question of like, how does profit operate? What role does it have? What if transparency were to include that information and that question, rather than to just embrace this idea of impact and grand challenges instead? I think there's a, a bigger question that we can continue to ask throughout this conversation, which is like, how is transparency currently being practiced? And what are other forms of transparency? What would meaningful transparency look like? Mm. Okay, because I, I can imagine that being a bit challenging. Obviously, there's a lot of VC capital in the space and VCs need to get their money back, multiplied ideally. And there's a lot of interest from corporations, which also would be necessary to actually scale this whole thing to a significant degree. So should startups be like, yeah, we want to make good cash? <laughs> Like, I want to get a Ferrari. <laughs> like, obviously, I'm exaggerating a little bit. How would a startup founder address that topic of profit? At some point, the startup founder, others involved in the startup, do think about transparency. Like, what's our brand identity? What do consumers need to know about us? What are the different parts of our website? What is our approach to transparency. And so there's quite a bit of investment of resources, of talent, of creativity, of ingenuity, and of money in answering those questions. So I don't have the answer to the question, but I'm pointing to the fact that those kinds of questions are being asked. And I'm suggesting that addressing legitimate questions that the public might have about the role that profit plays, it could potentially be in the consideration set there. Like there's a lot of considerations that are being taken seriously. And that might be a way to avoid the potential of furthering public alienation by pretending that those issues aren't there and that they don't exist. Yeah. So 
with GMOs, it would be great to actually touch upon this topic. Let's say GMOs, they definitely have their issues and their legitimate reasons for people to be against GMOs. But then there are also reasons which have been possibly intensified by public discourse, by media discourse. Like the, a lot of people are against GMOs also for personal health reasons. I don't have a strong opinion about it at the moment, but I would love to hear your insights on how GMO perception has been shaped and what we can learn from that. The question of the history of GMOs and how that plays a role in the present and in the future for alternative proteins is a really important one. And it's very much interrelated with a lot of the themes that we've talked about so far. And so I want to make that a little bit concrete here for a moment and say that central to the discourse on GMOs currently, but also in the past, has been the assumption that concerns with GMOs are caused by a lack of understanding. And what we call in science and technology studies, this deficit model of the pu public understanding of science. So we talked about that a little bit. And that's why there have been lots and lots of studies, lots and lots of efforts being made to explain how the science works, to make it seem friendly and familiar, to show the ways that it's analogous to technologies in cheese and in pharmaceuticals like insulin and in other places where people have accepted them readily and to address the potential concerns about it through education and information. So that's been really the central assumption uh, about what happened has been we failed to communicate. We went way too fast with this technology. And only later did we realize that we needed to communicate earlier about how the technology works, why it was safe, and the benefits. The assumption being, again, that consumers are acting on concerns about health and wealth. My body, my pocket, <laughs> right? I often hear people in the agri-food tech sector in general, but also especially in alternative proteins and cell-cultured meat and plant-based proteins that use genetic technologies, talking about how we need to do this different. We need to understand, correct, and address the, the mistakes of the past, and we need to be radically transparent. So the way we do this differently is we be radically transparent, and we promise benefits up front, and that will take care of it. And I think that the potential for unintended consequence there for that to, to be problematic in the same, the very same way that GMOs have been is that it, it, it's continuing to operate on the same assumptions that concerns are about lack of understanding and knowledge and that they're solely about health and wealth, about potential risks to my body or my pocket. And we see this in the history of GMOs, that people were very much concerned with the broader sociopolitical questions about consolidation in, in the agricultural sector, about intellectual property rights, about the patenting of seeds, about the impacts on farmers around the world. These were big political, social questions and concerns that the public had that weren't solely about how is this going to affect me and that couldn't solely be addressed by educating people about how the technology worked or showing them studies that proved that they were safe. And so how could the future be different? There's this real, this real desire not to repeat the mistakes of the past, right? And so what if that included rethinking this assumption that public concerns are the result of lack of understanding 
rethinking the assumption that public concerns are solely about individual health and wealth, about risk, about safety. And again, that involves thinking about how the technology fits into the system, the food system, which is also a social system that involves people and power and politics. Yes, it complicates things, but that complexity is already there. It's just been falsely narrowed out of the picture and it hasn't worked in the past. So maybe that is a very good reason and impetus to do things differently going forward, even though you raise great questions about, like, this is hard. Like, these are startups. They're trying to develop these technologies. This isn't necessarily what they're trying to do, but they are concerned about repeating the, the mistakes of the past. They are approaching transparency as a solution to that. And I think that we could present a a good challenge to like thinking bigger and bolder about what transparency could be. I often, so often hear this insistence among the producers of cultured meat in particular, that it's not new, right? That our chicken looks and cooks and tastes like chicken because it is real chicken, right? That's exactly what Memphis Meat says about their product. Like, it's not new. It's exactly the same as the meat that you grew up with or whatever, but better. This is one of the sort of central tenets of communication right now that I think is meant to ensure consumer acceptance, but has a potential for unintended consequences and possibly alienation. And I'm wondering, I guess I I kind of wanted to hear from you. Why do you think this idea of like, it's not new, it's exactly the same has become so central? There is an interesting TED talk on new innovations having to be two things at once. They need to be familiar enough for people to accept them and novel enough to be interesting. And I guess with cellular agriculture, the issue is that it's a bit too novel for many people, thus causing a disgust reaction. Or I I talk to people about this on a daily basis. And even the open-minded ones, the ones where I'm like, I mean, you, you must, you must know about this. Like, you must be totally in for that. They're like, ugh. So I guess it's an attempt to shift the balance back to more of a middle. Um, it, it is still novel, but not too novel for people that are in this way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So our meat is just like real meat, only better is a way of, is a way of responding to the need to be both novel and familiar, to be familiar enough to be, to feel approachable and safe and novel enough to be interesting and worth trying, right? Or to actually be worthwhile because it's going to have a benefit. But if you, if we take a step back, like this insistence that it's the same, but better, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's exactly the same. And yet we can dial up or down nutritional characteristics, yet it has totally different impacts on the environment, you know, and so therefore it is not exactly the same. It's actually very different in that sense. The food movements in general have been telling people for decades that you need to care where your food comes from, that it matters where it comes from, that the context of production, the methods of production matter. And now we want to tell people It doesn't matter where your food comes from. It doesn't matter how it's produced because it's the same on the plate. You know, it's only what's on the plate that matters. It's exactly the same at the end, right? And so it's really in contradiction to this really fundamental value that we've taken up as a society, which is that production methods do matter. It's not the same. It's different in important ways. That's the whole point. It's transformative. It's disruptive. It can't also be the same. And so that's something that I've noticed and that I've really worried about interesting okay charlotte 
If you would have 50 million, in what business fields would you invest it in? Oh my gosh. Well, I think I, would in, I wouldn't probably invest it in a business. I would invest it in the part of the business that you have clearly explained is lacking that we've identified together in this conversation is that we couldn't together figure out how these technologies fit into a broader food system, questions of social justice and questions of social relations and food and culture, et cetera. And so I would invest it in creating spaces and places and creative methods for engaging, for co-conjuring food futures together with the public for co-design. I would create some really cool art science synergies that would invite and engage the public in questions about the future of food and what it could look like. So I would invest in that missing piece of of like asking these bigger questions about what the t these technologies fit into and how we could be even bigger, bolder, more disruptive and more visionary and what's possible for all of that. What is an unusual or controversial opinion that you hold regarding food tech or sustainability? Well, in a way, I think everything that we've said in the interview is a little bit of a contrarian perspective. I think the other guests in your series come to the interview with a intense commitment to promoting these technologies. And I, I share a commitment to envisioning a better food system, a more sustainable and more socially just food system in the future and feeding the future. But I think I've taken a fairly contrarian and potentially unpopular perspective in terms of really challenging the sector to rethink the question of consumer acceptance and reframe it as something much bigger that's about how we engage publics. How can listeners reach out to you? Well, you can find me on my website, charlottebiltkoff.com. And you can also find me at UC Davis and at my UC Davis email, cbiltkoff at ucdavis.edu. Thank you so much, Department of Unintended Consequences, <laughs> aka Charlotte. Thanks for being on Red to Green. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun to talk to you. Thank you for listening. Each season is like an audiobook and the episodes build upon each other. So check out the other ones to get a full picture. Also, consider listening to season one on cell-cultured products like real beef or real dairy made without the cow. Or listen to season two on plastic alternatives and sustainable food packaging. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.